Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, coming to you live from my living room with an audience of two cats, a bunch of orchids, and safely socially distancing from my neighbors because of the coronavirus. But if you've been listening to any of my past podcasts, you know that I'm especially concerned about people who have been wrongly imprisoned, especially those on death row. And there was a Broward man serving a life sentence. He was put in jail in 2003 for an armed robbery and aggravated assault in Dania Beach, which is basically, Dania Beach is about in the center of Broward County along the coastline, just south of Fort Lauderdale. His name is Leonard Curie's 50 years old, and he was found guilty of robbery with a firearm and aggravated assault by a Broward jury. It took him actually two times because the first jury came back hung. So because he was classified as an habitual felony offender, he was sentenced to life in state prison. This was on November 3rd, 2004. You know, Barry Sheck, he actually established the Innocence Project that looks at claims of prisoners who say they are innocent. And many, many, many of those, more several hundred, have been overturned due to DNA results and false evidence. But in this case, the Broward State Attorney's Office is recommending that Cure should be released immediately while prosecutors complete a more extensive reexamination of his case. Now, there was a court hearing. They had it on Zoom. And it was scheduled earlier this month with the Broward Circuit Judge John Murphy. And according to the state's attorney's office, the prosecution and defense jointly recommended that Cure be released on time served. Now, this is the same prosecutor that put him behind bars is now recommending that he be released. So the recommendation stems from the state attorney's office conviction review unit, which I think is pretty cool. It's not quite the Innocence Project, but at least they're looking at cases that are questionable. And it was launched last year in 2019 to formalize the Broward State Attorney's Office long-term practice of reviewing and investigating claims of innocence. Now, I know probably everybody who's put behind bars says, I didn't do it, but some of them are valid. And this is what the prosecutor said. After considering the facts and circumstances of this case, it is our conclusion that it's in the best interest of justice to release Mr. Cure as soon as possible. So the assistant state attorney, Ariel Demby Berger, who leads that unit, the review unit, said in a statement, this will allow him to be released while we can thoroughly review his case. Well, basically, so they can look over how they screwed up. So they said, according to the Broward State Attorney Mike Satz, he said, this is the right thing to do. Well, you have to understand the enormity of the decision to allow cure out of prison for time served, because when you are convicted by a jury, it's very difficult for a judge to overturn that conviction, even if there's glaring proof that you didn't do it. The crime involved Cure being convicted of stealing $1,700 in cash from two employees at a Walgreens store in Dania Beach on November 10th, 2003. And Berger wrote a memo that reads in part, The issues we find most troublesome in this case are those surrounding how Cure became a suspect in the first place. He writes on, Seemingly, a man who had no connection to a Walgreens robbery became the main suspect after someone reviewed photos of well-dressed, neat-appearing African-American males. That was it. There was no physical evidence, 
no witnesses who knew Cure. The whole thing was based on a bad identification, which makes everything that came after it null and void. The Broward's New Conviction Review Unit reviewed the case, found many unanswered questions, including how Cure was even identified as a suspect. The original prosecutor also saw the weaknesses in the case. One of the two victims had a difficult time identifying Cure in a lineup, and after his first jury came back hung, he offered a below-guideline sentence of seven years, so Cure has now served significantly more time than that, over 16 years. And after the hung jury, he continued to maintain his innocence, and a second jury convicted him, and he was then sentenced by the judge, Fred Berman, to life in prison. So let's just take a pause here and think about what we're talking about. I've said before in previous podcasts that someone can come knocking on your door, or any law enforcement, and place you under arrest for murder because someone said you did it. I mean, this this is the same thing that happened to this guy, but it wasn't a murder. It was an armed robbery. If you're identified, there are people in jail because an eyewitness put him there, and that eyewitness testimony is characteristically faulty. And science does tell us not to rely on it. I know my mom back in the 70s was held up at gunpoint in the parking lot of Hudson's. It's a was a store, box store back then. And she was able to identify the woman involved. The woman had a big, huge Afro wig on. And my mom was able to identify her from a lineup and a mugshot with just pulled back hair, straight pulled back hair. And again, she was African-American. And one of the arguments is that when people are of different races, it's difficult to identify the perpetrator via a lineup or a, a photo lineup. And in my mom's case, even seven years later, when the woman was rearrested, my mom was able to identify her again. But in fact, each time we remember something, we're actually only remembering the last time we thought about it. Rather than the original event, it's kind of like the game of telephone. Our brain retells the story and the story changes a little bit. And that's what the new memory becomes. Now, there are many reasons for eyewitness error, faulty perceptions. Before a person even forms a memory, you have to see, hear, smell, taste, or feel it. And this sometimes is problematic because the way people perceive things depends on their past experience biases and expectations. It's all through a lens and a filter and therefore things become a little distorted and it's a lot more difficult for you to form an accurate memory of a fast moving event. Stress can inhibit your ability to form reliable memories. And Lord knows during a crime, you are stressed out. Post-event misinformation, their studies show that people's memories can be shaped by information that they learn later. For instance, a witness to an accident may originally not know that the driver was at fault, but if that witness is later exposed to information indicating that one of the drivers was drunk, then they may suddenly remember that the driver was swerving erratically, even if they weren't. Now, shockingly, the Innocence Project has reported that 73%, 73%, three quarters of the 239 convictions overturned through DNA testing were based on eyewitness testimony. And one third of those overturned cases rested on the testimony of two or more mistaken eyewitnesses. So how could so many eyewitnesses be wrong? And that's really scary, right? Some of these people are on death row. Well, eyewitness identification typically involves selecting the alleged perpetrator from a police lineup, but it can also be based on police sketches and other methods. And these sketches are 
sketchy at best as well. So soon after selecting a suspect, eyewitnesses are asked to make a formal statement confirming the ID, and they try to recall any other details about the events surrounding the crime. And most jurors put a lot of weight on eyewitness testimony in deciding guilt. But if you're on a jury and there's eyewitness testimony, you should be skeptical. There could be bias in the eyewitness's testimony. Human memory doesn't work like a video recorder, as we said. It keeps remembering what it remembered last. Psychologists have found that memories are reconstructed rather than played back in total recall. It's like putting a puzzle together and then retrieving the video recording from the puzzle. So even questioning by a lawyer can alter the witness's testimony because fragments of memory may unknowingly be combined with information that is provided by the questioner, leading to an inaccurate recall. So some people partially or fully remember a false event that was told to them. Isn't it true that you saw the defendant with the knife over your mother? So there's a number of factors that can reduce the accuracy of an eyewitness and their identification. A lot of stress at the crime scene during the identification process, whether or not there was a weapon, because that can intensify stress and distract witnesses. All you can see is the gun. And some people are like, oh, it was blue and shiny. And then another person will say it was black and snub nose. I mean, everyone's going to give a differing opinion of what they saw. In fact, in the Case for Christ, it's a book that was written years ago, but it was an author who wanted to prove that Christ's existence and resurrection actually happened. There were four to 500 witnesses to having seen Christ after he was crucified, and all of their identifications and statements were different, which led to their credibility because every witness is going to have a different story. When you go to someone at a scene in New York and say, what did the perpetrator look like? They'll say six feet tall, blue hoodie, white, and the next guy is going to go, no, he was short. And he was fat and he had on a sweatshirt with no hood. So it all varies. So and if there's a use of a disguise by the perpetrator, such as a mask or a wig, that makes it more difficult. And racial disparity between the witness and the suspect. Many white people have problems identifying black people and vice versa. So brief viewing times at a lineup or during other identification procedures, lack of distinctive characteristics of the suspect, such as a tattoo or extreme height. He was really tall. He was in the NBA or he's really short. You know, that helps. Or a, a, a tattoo that, oh, yeah, he had a snake tattooed on his hand. That really kind of narrows down the prospect pool. So given the dangers of mistaken convictions based on faulty eyewitness testimony, how can we minimize these errors? Well, obviously DNA is helping, but the Innocence Project has proposed legislation to improve the accuracy of eyewitness IDs, and they include videotaping the identification procedure so that the jurors can determine if it was conducted properly, putting individuals in a lineup who resemble the witness's description of the perpetrator, informing the viewer of the lineup that the perpetrator may or may not be in it, and ensuring that the person administering the lineup or other identification procedure does not know who the suspect is. So in Leonard Cure's case, the eyewitness ID was tainted, which then put in question everything that came after it, including his conviction. So the Broward judge, he's a circuit judge, John Murphy, signed the order to release Cure from prison just last week. And Cure's reaction to finding out that he's being released from prison, he said, I am beyond excited. I have so many thanks for the state's attorney's office and the Innocence Project of Florida for paving the way for my freedom. I am looking forward to spending time with my family for the first time in 16 years. So apparently this is a definite cure for injustice. And as it stands now, 
Leonard Cure is set to be released from prison tomorrow, the day after this podcast drops. Now, moving on on this Full Rigor podcast, we're going to examine the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. What does that have to do with Florida? A ha ha ha, a lot. There's always a Florida connection, my friend. There was a famous prisoner who was held prisoner at Fort Jefferson in the Dry Tortugas that had an association to John Wilkes Booth. You're like, where are the Dry Tortugas? I've never heard of Fort Jefferson. The Dry Tortugas is an area known for its treacherous reefs. So a ship would be sailing along, you know, near the Bermuda Triangle, and all of a sudden, crash, it would hit bottom, but you wouldn't see it because it's a coral reef that's under the water. Very, very treacherous. So lots of ships sank in the area. And in 1825, a lighthouse was built on Garden Key to warn ships and guide them through the area safely. It's way at the southern end of the Florida Keys. So at the time, shipwrecks were common, with underwater wrecks dating back to the 1600s. The Dry Tortugas currently possess one of the richest concentrations of shipwrecks in North America. It's also because these large reefs surrounding the Dry Tortugas that the U.S. was able to establish one of the most strategic harbors in U.S. history. Fort Jefferson was born. Construction of the fort began in 1846, and although it was never officially finished, it remains an historic icon of the Dry Tortugas, and it receives thousands of visitors yearly. I visited. It's amazing. So Fort Jefferson is probably the largest masonry structure in the Western Hemisphere, and the Dry Tortugas actually separate the Atlantic Ocean from the Gulf of Mexico. So apparently the fort was built with between 16 to 20 million bricks according to various estimates, and it was largely constructed by slave labor. During the Civil War, during the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, the Union Army was contracting with slaveholders to snap the whip over the backs of slaves at Fort Jefferson. Their wages went to their owners. After the war, the fort served as a federal prison for deserters and political prisoners. And so why is it called the Dry Tortugas? Well, when Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon... Remember, he discovered the Fountain of Youth, and he also discovered the island in 1513, and he was amazed by the amount of sea turtles he saw, and he said they were everywhere. So he decided to name the island after the magnificent animals and gave the island the name Las Tortugas, which I guess means the turtles in Spanish, which is Spanish for turtles. Aha. So despite its beauty and abundance of nature, fresh water was scarce on the island, and so therefore the word dry was added to the name to warn sailors and visitors that they needed to bring their own fresh water to drink. B-Y-O-F-W <laughs> to the dry tortugas. But there was plenty of alcohol, too. It wasn't that dry in the Dry Tortugas. So Dry Tortugas National Park encompasses the history and natural wonders that make the island at the southern tip of the United States a truly remarkable place. It's home to a multitude of unique birds. It's also the only regular U.S. nesting site for the sooty terns of Bush Key, adjacent to Fort Jefferson. With vibrant coral reefs, nesting sea turtles, unique tropical fish, and underwater wonders, visiting the Dry Tortugas is an unforgettable experience. I've been there. My daughter, actually, we flew in from Key West on a pontoon plane, and I'm in the back seat. It's like only a six-seater. 
and my daughter's up in front of me at the time she's seven and I look up and the pilot has her steering the plane as we're landing on the water in the dry tortugas I'm like oh my god <laughs> and she was like not even terrified it was amazing and we went snorkeling in the beautiful reefs saw all the fish it's really really lovely but I digress because Fort Jefferson housed a very 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 famous inmate and you might recall he was the doctor that treated John Wilkes Booth after he broke his leg jumping from the theater balcony after he shot Abraham Lincoln in the head and of course that was Dr. Samuel Alexander Mudd with two D's. So Dr. Mudd was born December 20th, 1833 in Charles County, Maryland. He was the fourth of 10 children of Henry Lowe Mudd. So 10 kids, wow. And he himself had nine kids. I just wanted to take a little sidebar here and tell you, I have a Bible from my father's mother, my grandmother, Vivian Curtis. Her maiden name was Vivian Kent, who lived in Leroy, Michigan. And in the middle of the Bible, she writes down all the miscarriages she had. She had like nine miscarriages. It's a wonder my dad was even born. It's just shocking how many kids people had back at the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. They were very prolific, but in my grandmother's case, many of them were stillborn or died after birth. It was really shocking for me to see that in the Bible. But Dr. Mudd, again, was the fourth of 10 children, and his mother's name was Sarah, and Sam Mudd, was raised on the family plantation. <laughs> Sam, short for Samuel. Oak Hill, approximately 30 miles from downtown Washington, D.C. He received his early education in Frederick, Maryland, where at the age of 14, he attended St. John's College for two years. So not only were they prolific, they started young. Then in September of 1851, he entered Georgetown College. So that, that place is really old. Georgetown, if you've ever seen it, it's like built with rocks. Uh, that's in D.C. And three years later, he enrolled as a student at the Baltimore Medical College. It's now part of the University of Maryland, from which he graduated in 1856 as a doctor. And after graduation, Dr. Mudd returned home and began life as a practicing physician and a farmer. He had to do both. Apparently, back then, doctoring, being a doctor wasn't a lucrative profession as it is today. He married his childhood sweetheart, Sarah Frances Dyer. And as I said, they became the parents of nine children and grandparents of 33. So the hits just keep on coming in the Mudd family. So Dr. Mudd, most famously known for his tertiary involvement in the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, he was shot by John Wilkes Booth in 1865. Mudd's first encounter with Booth, though, this wasn't when he came to ask him to fix his leg. It was a year before the assassination. They had a discussion regarding the sale of a horse. So on Sunday in November of 1864, John Wilkes Booth first met Dr. Mudd at St. Mary's Church in Bryantown, and they discussed a horse sale, and Booth was invited to spend the night at Mudd's home. And then on December 23rd, a month later, the two men met by accident on a street in Washington, D.C., where John Surratt and Louis Weichmann happened by, and Booth invited all three men up to his hotel room for a drink. Now, depending on one's point of view, this discussion and events at this meeting were either totally innocent or, quote-unquote, suspicious. What were they talking about? Were they hatching a plan to shoot the president? 
On April 15, 1865, John Wilkes Booth shot and killed President Abraham Lincoln. Booth broke his leg in his leap from the stage at Ford's Theater, needing a doctor's assistance. He and David Harold arrived at Dr. Mudd's approximately 4 a.m. This was on April 15, 1865. Mudd set, splinted, and bandaged the broken leg. Although he had met Booth on at least two prior occasions, Dr. Mudd said he did not recognize his patient. He said the two used the names Tyson and Henston. So Booth and Harold stayed at the Mudd residence, apparently out in the barn, until the next afternoon, roughly a 12-hour stay, and Mudd asked his handyman, John Best, to make a pair of rough crutches for Booth. Mudd was paid $25 for his services. Booth and Harold left in the direction of the swamp, and within days, Dr. Mudd was arrested by the United States government. He was charged with conspiracy and with harboring Booth and Harold during their escape. In court, witnesses described him as the most attentive of the accused, and he was dressed in a black suit with a white shirt. Testimony against him at the trial included the harsh treatment of some of his slaves. Apparently, he had slaves and he treated them badly. He shot one man who survived and flogged another young woman. Like the others, he was found guilty. His sentence, life imprisonment. Down there in the dry Tortugas, he missed the death penalty, Dr. Mudd did, by one vote. They almost killed him. So at Fort Jefferson in the dry Tortugas, Dr. Mudd was imprisoned and allowed to stay in the dry Tortugas. And he was also allowed to stay in male contact with his wife. Mrs. Mudd also wrote letters to President Andrew Johnson seeking her husband's release. Now remember, Andrew Johnson became president after Lincoln was shot because he was the vice president at the time. Andrew Johnson was also the first president to be impeached, although he was not removed from office. Now, (laughs) Dr. Mudd attempted an escape from Fort Jefferson, but it failed in September of 1865. And then in February of 1867, Mudd was assigned to the prison's carpentry shop. And in the summer of 1867, yellow fever broke out on the island. Wow. See how disease changes everything? Yellow fever was also a virus. It was characterized by high fever as well, just like coronavirus, and jaundice, therefore yellow. Your case can last for several days or weeks, and it's usually preventable with a vaccine. And it's transmitted through indirect contact. Just another thing to be terrified of. And after the fort's physician died on September 7th, Mudd took a leadership role in aiding the sick. Mudd himself came down with the disease, but he recovered. Now, because of his outstanding efforts, a petition to the government in support of Dr. Mudd was signed by all non-commissioned officers and soldiers on the island. In February 1869, a courier from the United States government knocked on the front door of the Mudd home in D.C., When Mrs. Mudd answered the door, a man handed her an envelope. She opened it up and it read, From the President of the United States, please sign this receipt to certify that I have delivered it to you. If you have a reply, I shall return it for you. Mrs. Mudd opened the envelope and found a letter written on White House stationery. The date, February 8th, 1869. It read, Dear Mrs. Mudd, as promised, I have drawn up a pardon for your husband, Dr. Samuel A. Mudd. Please come to my office at your earliest convenience. I wish to sign it in your presence and give it to you personally. Sincerely, Andrew Johnson, the President of the United States of America. 
And as I said, for the first time in history, the United States House of Representatives impeached a sitting president, Democrat Andrew Johnson. So he was a Democrat. He ran with Lincoln during the Civil War on the National Union ticket. Kind of odd. The vice president had assumed office after John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln, and he was a union man. But his roots were in the South. This is a country for white men, he had reportedly declared. As long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. Well, that kind of pissed off the radical Republicans. So they impeached him. So Dr. Mudd was released a few weeks later from Fort Jefferson on March 8th, and he arrived home on March 20th. Took him a while to get from the dry Tortugas all the way up the Florida Keys, all the way up the peninsula of Florida, all the way through Georgia, the Carolinas, all the way back to D.C. Mudd couldn't take the train because it wasn't until 1896 that good old Henry Flagler, the American industrialist, finished the 500-mile railroad that ran all the way from Georgia through Jacksonville and then St. Augustine, which is the oldest city in the United States, all the way on down to Miami. It would have made it a heck of a lot easier for Dr. Mudd to get home. All aboard. But what's interesting about Vice President Johnson pardoning John Wilkes Booth, kind of like Cure gets released with time served and John Wilkes Booth gets pardoned, kind of weird situation. But Johnson repeatedly gave pardons to ex-rebels. He hampered military commanders' efforts to block the rise of Southern leaders to power. And in frequent speeches and interviews, Johnson publicly expressed his defiance of the radical Republicans. So letting Dr. Mudd go from a South Florida prison or the dried Tortugas, wasn't that shocking. And I've been to Dr. Mudd's cell in the Dry Tortugas at Fort Jefferson. It is a cave. You just kind of go up the staircase by the lighthouse and make a right, and it's right there. It had some trenches dug in it, and he wrote to his wife saying, I had to dig these trenches and holes because when it rains, it would flood in here. It wasn't so much the Dry Tortugas in his cell. So he had to have like a way to get the water out of his cell. God, that must have been so cold. My bones would hurt. So Dr. Mudd totally left his impression on us because we still to this day say your name is Mudd when you do something wrong because, well, it's with one D, but one's name is Mudd means that one is unpopular or perhaps in disgrace or embroiled in scandal. Most people believe that the term one's name is Mudd comes from the assassination of the American president, Abraham Lincoln, by John Wilkes Booth and the doctor, Dr. Samuel Mudd, who repaired Booth's leg. Well, that wraps up Full Rigor for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit my Instagram page, Full Rigor Podcast. You can see photos of Leonard Cure and also of John Wilkes Booth and Dr. Mudd. Until next time, I'm Karen Curtis Mudd. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors, We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you. With Black Friday savings at the Home Depot, you can get top brand laundry sets with the latest tech to tackle any mess you might face this holiday, like automatic fabric and load size detection for spills of any size, from cookies and milk on your favorite holiday sweater, to the toddler of the house discovering just how fun cranberry sauce can be. (laughs) 
Make more magic this holiday season. Let your new appliances handle the mess. Shop Black Friday savings and get up to 30% off, plus instantly save up to $750 on select LG laundry sets at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Offer valid November 2nd through 30th. U.S. only. See store or online for details.